G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Do you believe that it's God's intention that Christians living in our world, uh, that we should suffer? Uh, Let me make it a bit more specific and a bit more personal. Do you believe that God intends that you should suffer for the name of Christ in this life? Um, I think it's a sobering question. I mean, Peter's obviously talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering for the name of Christ. It's a serious question. I think think it's a a subtle question or deserves a subtle answer in in any case. My hunch is that we feel conflicted. When we hear that particular question, we don't want to say, um, we don't want to say, yes, God intends that we suffer for the name of Christ. Um, Why not? Well, because we know a God who loves us as his children. We know a father who guides us. We know a Lord of tenderness and mercy who suffered for us in our place instead of us. At Christ's death to save us, don't we? Isn't that the God that we know? That we could say that he actively intends suffering. Um, it seems to misrepresent him. It, it seems to, it sounds unfair to the God whose grace and mercy and tenderness towards us at his own expense just continues to delight us. We marvel at it. We're relieved by it time after time. How can we say yes? And yet, can we really say no? No, God doesn't intend that we suffer for the name of Christ, for the reality is, of course, that we do suffer for the name of Christ. Now, for most of us, is it fair to say, in our context, most of our suffering or hardship isn't particularly uniquely identifiably on account of us being Christians. It's not that we suffer for the name of Christ and that's all of our suffering. No, that's one reason among many, one cause among many, and perhaps most of our hardship has nothing particularly to do with us being Christians specifically. Um, I've asked about suffering for the name of Christ. I think that's what the text in front of us in 1 Peter is about. Uh, But that's only one reason among many that we might suffer. But even... Copying it for being Christians, um, yes, in small ways we do, and perhaps increasingly in our culture, we foresee or fear that we may even more, if it is not God intending that we suffer for the name of Christ, well, it sure happens. So I'm reticent to say he doesn't intend it, for our God is the sovereign God. He orchestrates all things, do you see? He's in control. How can he not intend it? Do you believe that God intends that you should suffer for the name of Christ? So perhaps we land not at a confident yes, um, nor at a categorical no. We prefer the language of permission. Is that where we sort of land? Well, God permits that we suffer for the name of Jesus He allows it, he accommodates it, and he will be with us. He'll be a refuge for us. Uh, He'll be our strength when we are weak, all of that kind of thing. Friends, this morning, brothers and sisters, um, here's a thought. Would Peter, from what we've read, 1 Peter 4, would Peter struggle to answer that question, do you think? 
from 1 Peter 4. Uh, Does God intend that we should suffer for the name of Christ in this life? I think that Peter comes very close indeed to a direct yes. And I think we're going, to, we're going to explore that today. Not no, not a mincing kind of maybe, not possibly, not well, he might permit it if he can't figure out another way uh, to do it and if he absolutely must. I think Peter's answer sounds a lot like, um, yes, God intends that you and I, that every Christian should suffer for the name of Christ in this life. And, and of course, Peter wouldn't. He, Peter will not have God be the author of evil. None of that. He won't. He won't allow that. But difficult as that may be for us to square with our heart and our faith, well, we'll see it together. Now, we, we need to be careful exactly about what we mean by that. Um, and I hope we're going to see that this morning. But get this: it seems to me that Peter shows us that suffering. In the name of Christ, for Christ, as a Christian specifically, it can mean good for us from this text. Hard as that may be to reconcile with our hearts and our heads, can mean good for us. More than that, can mean very good things for the people around us, can mean wonderful things in the grand scheme of things for our world. And I suspect we need to tread carefully to wrap our heads and our hearts around all this. Is that fair to say? Let's take a look together but first let's pray let's pray our father god in heaven each of us goes through hardship in this life and none of us knows what lies directly ahead and even in this room there are some perhaps who we love very dearly or we call to mind maybe they're not in this room but we call them to mind and they suffer even now under awfully heavy burdens, tremendous burdens. And we know you to be a loving father. We know you to be a a mighty rock, a deep and a safe refuge. You are a refuge for our souls, even when we don't feel safe or protected, even when we can't see it. And perhaps that's how some of us feel this morning, even coming to this very heavy topic. But God, we also recognise that there are many kinds of suffering Uh, many causes for hardship. Sometimes we suffer because of our own evil. At other times we buckle under the weight of the world's brokenness and brutality. But sometimes, just sometimes, we suffer specifically because we bear the name Christian. Father, would you help us to better grasp that one today, please? We may not be able to unravel the whole knot of suffering this morning, but may we find a way to bring our difficulty and pain, our struggle for being Christians, living as Christians, living for Christ, find a way to live under that burden specifically today. So we ask for your help in this, O Father, and we also pray, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day with every tear wiped away and everything made new. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, where is it in this text, 1 Peter chapter 4, if you uh, have closed the uh, book in front of you, 1 Peter chapter 4, where is it in this text that I see this, yes, God intends that we suffer for the name of Christ. Where is it that, I, uh, that I'm seeing that in this text? Let's have a look at verse 17. For instance, chapter 4, verse 17, where Peter writes, for it is time for the judgment, uh, for judgment to begin with God's household, says Peter. It's time. 
Uh, and Peter may be using the word judgment there um, kind of loosely. In fact, in some sense, I think he must be. He doesn't mean, he can't mean, can he? God's condemning, God's holding our sin against us kind of a thing. He may not even mean judgment, I suppose, in the normal sense of it. He may just mean simply hardship or suffering or difficulty as a kind of parallel to the uh, hardship uh, difficulty, which is judgment in the second half of the verse. Because our present hardship is kind of like the judgment that the non-Christian world has bearing down upon it. Let's read the verse together. For it is time, chapter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So in God's timing of things, his plan, his design, God's household experiences this judgment, whatever that means. Verse 19, have a scan down to there. So then, writes Peter, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. And and that verse may just be referring to the manner of your suffering, that is, uh, uh, suffer the way that God would have you suffer, uh, would will that you suffer, you know, Be godly, persevere, um, suffer according to God's will in that sense. But I don't think that's what the verse actually means. I think it actually means, it just means when you suffer, realise that God has willed it. It's part of his design. Not vindictively, not nastily. I mean, we know that from the character of God, but sovereignly, carefully, it comes from God. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. And uh, verse 12, dear friends, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We need to remember the context. We've seen it over these last four or so weeks. Uh, These dear Christians, the original recipients of this letter, to these dear Christians... Few in number, far from home, fearful and very much under fire in Asia Minor in the first century. Are you suffering right now for being a Christian? Peter writes to these foreigners and exiles, strangers. Don't let it surprise you. A fiery ordeal for the name of Christ. It's not a strange thing. You haven't fallen outside of God's will somehow. Does God intend that Christians should suffer for the name of Christ in this world? I think this passage brings us very close to conceding that, well, yes, it looks like it. Not that God is the author of evil. No, no, it can't be. He is the author of all good things. Now, Peter then wants us to hear three invitations. Are you suffering for the name of Christ in your life? Peter wants us to hear three invitations. And that's where we're going to be focusing today. Three invitations for those who know and feel and experience that suffering uh, for the name of Christ. And it's no surprise and it can't be avoided and it must be endured. And you want to do it in a, a way of godliness according to how God would have you suffer. We cannot escape it. Three invitations to see suffering for our Saviour a little bit differently. Uh, Here they are. I'll give them to you up front. Firstly, will we rejoice in your partnership 
even as you suffer, rejoice in your partnership in Christ, with Christ? Will we, secondly, recognise in our suffering for Christ, will we recognise his purpose for you? And we're just talking about suffering for bearing the name of Christ, not all suffering necessarily, uh, but recognise his purpose for you in that kind of suffering. And thirdly, finally, will you resolve to show compassion even as you suffer? It's a heavy word this morning, but there are three invitations here which may go some way to transforming our suffering for bearing the name of Christ in this hostile world. Let's take them in that order. So firstly, we're invited, I think, in this text, as we suffer for Christ as Christians, to, what's the word there, participate somehow in Christ's sufferings. Let's have a look at the text together, because what on earth does that mean? Let's take a look together from verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. There you have a look at those two verses. Most of it's pretty straightforward, actually, isn't it? Uh, verse 12, there's nothing surprising about Christians suffering for being Christians. Verse 13, we suffer now, yes, but when Jesus returns in glory, do you see it there? That joy then, in fact, that overjoy then, infuses even now, Peter seems to see it, uh, with a taste, with a foretaste, with an anticipation which whets our appetite for, uh, the, for all the more joy when Christ returns. Right, it's kind of the easy stuff. Those bits are easy to understand. Verse 12, Christians are going to suffer in this life, but verse 13, look at Christ's return and doesn't that um, fuel us with some joy even now? But verse 12, this bit is tricky. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? It can't possibly mean that the sufferings of Jesus on the cross that I somehow get to go back there and do some of that for him, can it? What does it mean to participate in the sufferings of Christ? The whole idea, I mean, that's delusional. I can't bear my sin. That's the whole idea of the cross. I can't bear your sin, whatever they are before God. No, I can't bear anyone else's sin. We know that Jesus did it once for all. That's the whole point. How can anyone participate in that? The whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross is that Jesus was dying to save people who couldn't save themselves, isn't it? So what kind of participation can it possibly be then? The word there, the participation word, is the same as like um, fellowship or partnership or a common good, togetherness, that kind of a thing. How do we participate in Christ's suffering in that sense? Well, let me ask it like this. Should it surprise us that Christ suffered in this dark world? When God came into this world that had shown its colours so many times that they were against him, had turned their back on him, rebelled against him, should it surprise us that Christ suffered when he came into the world? Should it surprise us, does it particularly surprise us that we will suffer in so much as we have pinned our colours to the mask? No, we are with Christ. Probably not. It probably shouldn't surprise us, should it? 
But have we considered this? Will the world see something of Christ's suffering in the sufferings of those who live for him? Do you see? If it's no surprise to us that Christ suffered when he came into the world, for he is good and he is from God and he is God in the world that is so dark and against him, And it doesn't surprise us that we then suffer, therefore, as a result, for we want to be with him. Will the world see something of Christ's suffering as they look at us and see us suffering for Christ? Do our sufferings share his likeness, serve the same goal? Not to bear sin, we can't bear one another's sin. But do they point the world to salvation in Christ, his sufferings for them? Do my sufferings for the name of Jesus speak of Jesus, reflect Jesus to the world around me or not? I think that's what Peter's getting at. So every time a Christian endures hardship, that means we, it means you, it means I, we, what's the right word for it? Reenact Christ's suffering? Maybe that's too strong. Re-embody? We remind, do you see, anyone with the eyes to see of the story of Christ's suffering for the lives and souls of our world. So when people verbally abuse you, have a go at you, uh, maybe shun you, overlook you or ignore you or cajole you specifically for being a Christian, that's the category of suffering, suffering that we're talking about. Do you see where the joy might come in? Because it actually reminds me, it reunites me, it reinforces for me that story of the suffering of Christ in a contrary world for its salvation. Now, their words, um, they're still going to hurt, or the impact that it has on your employment, that's still going to hurt, might have pretty long-lasting consequences, actually. I'm not denying any of that, but does hardship remind us, huh, This is exactly why Christ came. This is exactly the same shape as why Christ came into the world. This is exactly why he's coming back. And it's not strange. This is the world that we live in. This is the time that we live in. This is the gospel expressed in my life. All too vividly, but with a recognition of the joy to come. Secondly, uh, we're invited... So firstly, rejoice in the partnership that we have with Christ. Secondly, we were invited to recognise that suffering for Christ, not all suffering necessarily, I don't think that we can say that, but from this passage at least we can say this, suffering for Christ, uh, suffering simply for bearing the name Christian, positions us to serve a purpose in the plans of God. Suffering for Christ positions us to Serve a purpose in the plans of God. So see if you can make it out there in verse 14. Let's have a look at that one together. Verse 14, where Peter says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed But praise God that you bear that name. 
So Peter is very clear there, isn't he, actually, that he's not talking about suffering. Um, what, what does he say there? Suffering because you won't keep your nose out of other people's business, right? As a meddler. Don't suffer as a meddler or, or as anything else more dark or sinister in your life. No, that's not the kind of suffering that I'm addressing at the moment. Uh, but what, it, 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 what does he say? Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for... Now, this is the bit. Have a look at this. What does this mean? For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Could we dig into that phrase for a few moments together? Because that phrase crops up in only a few places across the Bible, as I make it out anyway, and perhaps I've missed one or two, I don't know. Uh, What do you reckon it means that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you? Does it just mean, well, we all have God's spirit as Christians. Does it just mean God's spirit will come and comfort you? God's spirit will come and comfort you. So take heart, be calmed, Christian, for God is with you. He is around you. He is over you. So let not the insults and the and rage bear down upon your heart and crush you. Um, Come with me. Let's have a look at this phrase together. Uh, Here's an unusual spot. I'll give you a chance to get to it. Numbers chapter 11. Could you turn up Numbers chapter 11? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible, Numbers chapter 11. Uh, It's a strange spot to go. The context, just while you're turning there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Big number 11 in the text. Uh, Chapter 11. Uh, if you've got it there, and look for verse 17, firstly, sentence number 17. in the, te- the context is that God's people, what are they doing? They are moaning and complaining at this uh, point in time. So we way back in the Old Testament, we're around 1500 BC, thereabouts, 1500, 1300, somewhere in there. Uh, they are moaning and complaining against the Lord because of the hardship that they are under. That's the context in Numbers 11. And Moses, all right, so we're back in Moses' era, Moses can't take it anymore. Um, he's the sole mouthpiece of God to a moaning, complaining people of God. I can't do it alone anymore, God. So verse 17, sentence number 17 of Numbers 11, God says, I will come down and speak with you, Moses. I, the Lord, will come down and speak with you and I'll take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, that is on the 70-odd elders and leaders within Israel, they will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Now come down to verse 25, Numbers 11, verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him, on Moses, and put it on the 70 elders when the spirit, here it is, rested on them. They prophesied, but they didn't do it again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They'd missed the roll call, you see. They were supposed to be part of the 70. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also, here it is, rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. So the spirit comes to rest and it leads to this prophetic 
speaking the words of God, leading in the, among the people of God. Now, almost the same phrase, we'll leave numbers behind, um, you, don't worry about turning to the next one, almost the same phrase crops up where the prophet Elijah, who was a prophet very much like Moses, Elijah has just died, uh, way forward in 2 Kings chapter t- uh, 2, and uh, everyone's wondering, but what has happened now to the sole mouthpiece of God in our day? Elijah was the great mouthpiece from God, his great prophet. Elijah dies and then, I'll just read this to you, 2 Kings chapter 2, the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha, another guy, his successor. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So Elisha then came to carry the mantle, as it were, speaking, proclaiming, leading among the people of God in their day. And lastly, at Christmas time, uh, we quote this one, and Marion read it to us just before. Perhaps you were wondering why we read that uh, Christmas reading, Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And that's kind of it for that phrase, the spirit coming to rest on them. Uh, You search for the spirit resting on a person, you get the 70 elders preaching for God um, and leading Israel. You get Elisha doing the same after Elijah had done it. You get the promise of Jesus He will emerge with wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. And of course, finally, you get the Holy Spirit coming on believers on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire separating and resting on each of them. And what did they do? They preached, they proclaimed, they spoke the word of the gospel. So now do you realise, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, is there some comfort in that? Um, you bet there is. Do I know that he is present with me? Even if my friends and my classmates or my colleagues at work or um, even if my spouse is against me and having a go at me for heading off to church on a Sunday morning or whatever it is, ridicules me, mocks. But I think it's got to be more if that's the background to that phrase, doesn't it? It's got to have something to do with that prophetic, um, speaking, powerful message kind of flavour to it. For God's spirit rests on you such that when their insults bear down upon you, you in your suffering somehow speak of the one who suffered. Our gospel, our good news, somehow rings out from you, do you see? That you suffer for Christ and bear insults on his account speaks to them of the Christ who willingly bore our suffering on himself. Not as a meddler, not as an evildoer, not as a sinner, no. Christ bore the insults of men and women that we might be saved. He suffered unjustly for God to bring us to glory. So can we find this purpose in our 
suffering for the name of Christ. That you suffer unjustly, yes, that they might come to see Christ. Do you see? Your suffering is not without purpose, Christian. It can display the very gospel itself. As our Jesus went to the hill of Golgotha, bearing their insults, that they might be saved. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Which leads to the third and final invitation, to resolve to bring a perspective of compassion as you bear the name of Christ in a world which one day will meet Christ, one way or the other. Now, this is very important. If, if I'm right in what we've said so far, then in this context, just um, have you got 1 Peter 4 still open in front of you? I need to turn back to it myself, 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, if I'm right in what we've said so far, then in context, this last bit, it cannot possibly be saying to us, rest assured, Christian, because those mockers, those scoffers, those sinners, they will get it a hundred times worse. It can't be saying that, can it? You may suffer now, but one day they'll get it. Can it possibly be saying that? Surely Peter wants to see us stirred to compassion for the world that's flailing around all around us. And Peter, remember, if you please keep this in mind, Peter was one who was once ashamed to bear the name of Jesus. Do you remember the occasion? Do you remember the story? Peter knew what it was to shun our Saviour and deny his name. Peter once stood on the other side of the fence. And all because of the petty little taunts of a slave girl, do you remember, on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Peter wants our hearts to do the impossible here, I think. Can we be moved to compassion for our deniers, for our insulters, our opponents, our critics, our mockers? Verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 4, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And if we knew our Jewish scriptures as well as Peter did, uh, perhaps we'd recall the verse immediately before that proverb that he's just quoted there, Proverbs 11, verse 30, the fruit of the righteous person is a tree of life and the one who is wise saves lives. And then if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Brothers and sisters, this morning, let's move towards a conclusion of this um, uncomfortable and heavy topic. And I'd like to ask you a question that perhaps has occurred to you more than once this morning as we've worked our way through this text. Is it gutsy to ask the one who suffers for bearing the name Christian, is it gutsy to invite them to find joy in Christ, to find purpose and meaning in their suffering, to be moved to compassion for the very person who's laying it on, is that gutsy or is it actually a bit much? I will say this, if it were only Peter, mere Peter, a mere man, if it were the words of a mere human being, I think it wouldn't be gutsy, I think it would be gutless, wouldn't it? 
because he would be calling us to an idealism, to a perfection, to a path that he hadn't even lived up to. In fact, that he'd famously failed in. But can we marvel at this? We are invited by the Lord Jesus himself, empowered by his spirit to display his suffering and his coming glory and Christ's compassionate heart and his intention and desire to a world and to our friends and to the unbelieving spouse or that critical colleague, whomever it is, for Christ suffered for you, for them. He suffered for me that we and that you and that they may one day be overjoyed, not swept away, overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The spirit rested on him. He suffered unjustly and unfairly because of spite and jealousy and nastiness and evil. He wasn't ashamed to carry an unfair cross to the hill of Golgotha. He was not surprised at the fiery ordeal that came upon him as if something strange were happening to him. So we'll close with these words from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we sometimes don't know what to do. Don't know where to turn on those occasions where we bear scorn or mocking or shunning or shame just for being Christians. Thank you that it doesn't happen more often in our culture or with more dire consequences, as is the case for so many of our fellow believers the world over this very day and certainly down through history at different times. But Father, in our context, we do still wonder, would the world see Christ in us were we to stand in suffering with joy and with purpose and with compassion? Lord, for those among us whose home life is under strain because of their faith, perhaps an unbelieving flatmate or spouse or even a child for that matter, or siblings or parents, would you sustain us in joy, in purpose, in compassion? Would you please do the same in those friendship circles where our convictions and faith come under fire and seem so unwelcome or in our workplaces for some of us, God, enlarge our hearts with the grace and mercy of Jesus towards his most strident opponents, that friend of sinners, that saviour of his enemies, the lover of our world. We ask it in Jesus' name, please. Amen.